Thank you to our cooks for tonight. It was all very good. Second Samuel 21 all the way to 24 is the end of First uh, and Second Samuel. So these final four chapters are somewhat of an appendix to the end of the book. They're not necessarily in chronological order. And if you're looking at 2 Samuel 22, you can probably tell that uh, it looks like a psalm, and it actually is one of the psalms. It's, it's virtually identical to Psalm 18. Uh, so this is a, a song of deliverance from David, where he's celebrating the Lord rescuing him from Saul and all his enemies. And that's what we'll be looking at tonight. We don't really know uh, when in David's life he wrote this song. Most likely it seems that he probably wrote it near the end of his life because he's celebrating the Lord's deliverance from all of his enemies. But let's pray and we'll, we'll start looking at it together. <clears throat> let's ask for God's help. Father in heaven, we thank you that once again we can open up your word and know that we have a sure and certain word from you. Uh, we thank you that though the grass withers and the flower falls, your word endures forever. We pray that you would give us open ears and open hearts so that we can receive this word, not as the word of man, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in those of us who believe. We pray that this would not merely be information for us, but that this would lead to our spiritual transformation, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would grow in our knowledge of you and that you would produce the fruit of your spirit in our lives. We pray that you would help us to uh, have good discussions later on this evening as we discuss your word together and help us to sharpen one another in our faith, deepen our love for you uh, so that we might live holy lives in this world. We pray that you would speak to us and build us up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, let's start with those first uh, four verses of 2 Samuel 22. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. So, as I said, this uh, psalm or song is a song of deliverance. David is celebrating God's deliverance in his life. Uh, res God's rescuing him from the hand of Saul. God's rescuing him from all the enemies that's, that stood against him. And if you really think about it, David's entire life could be characterized as a life in which he experienced the Lord's deliverance. So you go back even to when he was a boy, God used David to deliver the people of Israel from the hand of the Philistines uh, when he defeated Goliath. Uh, later on in his life, when Saul was seeking to kill him, uh, God delivered him multiple occasions from the hand of Saul. 
Uh, still later on, uh, at the beginning of 2 Samuel, we read about Saul's son Ishbosheth, and God delivered David from the hand of Ishbosheth. And if you remember, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was killed, the two assassins came to David, and they thought David would be really excited that they had killed his enemy. And David actually ends up putting those two assassins to death. But David says in 2 Samuel 4, chapter 4 and verse 9, that the Lord has redeemed my life out of every adversity. The Lord has redeemed my life out of every adversity. And so basically, David summarized his own life that at every turn of the page, he was experiencing God's deliverance. So it wasn't just that David had been saved, he was being saved, and continuously God was, was, was rescuing him. And the reason why this song of deliverance is here for us in 2 Samuel, and also, as I said, in Psalm 18, is because this isn't just the story of David's deliverance, but it's also meant to be appropriated by all God's people in every generation. So we, we read about David's deliverance, and, and we know the background with Saul or the other enemies of David, but we also recognize that all of God's people are meant to pray this, and they're all meant to sing it and appropriate, appropriate it as God's deliverance of our lives. Um, and we know that the, the, the deliverance that the Lord brought in David's life was ultimately a picture of David's greater son, the Messiah, and how God would deliver the Messiah, Jesus, from all of his enemies uh, and vindicate his righteous servant. <clears throat> Another thing to bear in mind as we start looking at this chapter is that um, as the Lord's anointed, David was God's lamp to his people, God's lamp. At the end of chapter 21, when David was going out against the Philistines, uh, the men of David tried to dissuade David from going out and fighting the Philistines in his old age because they said in 2 Samuel 21 and verse 17, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. And so God was using David, the Lord's anointed, to be his lamp, to be the light of God for the people. And of course, David understood, if you look in 2 Samuel 22, in verse 29, that the Lord was his lamp. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and God lightens my darkness. So God was shining his life into David, the Lord's anointed, God's king, and David was supposed to be in turn shining that light of God's truth and righteousness upon the people and so the deliverance here of the Lord's anointed is also a deliverance for the whole people because the peop so go the king, so goes the people. And as the Lord shines the light through David, it blesses all the people of God. And when the king doesn't walk in the light, all the people also share in that darkness. It's also interesting that uh, 1 Samuel began, if you remember, with a prayer from Hannah, which read like a psalm. And in Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, there are themes in that prayer that show up again here in 2 Samuel 22. Uh, two the major themes. One, God speaks of thundering against his enemies in Hannah's prayer and in David's prayer here. And two, in Hannah's prayer and in David's prayer, God speaks of giving victory to his king. So the Lord's going to thunder against his enemies in that awesome language. And then he's going to give victory to his king. And both Hannah prayed about that at the beginning of 1 Samuel, 
that theme reemerges in 2 Samuel at the end, and it, so, so it forms somewhat of an inclusion, or sandwiches 1 and 2 Samuel together to show us that this is really about the Lord vindicating his king, defeating his enemies, and blessing his people. And, uh, and that theme runs throughout this whole, whole chapter. So it's not just about David's deliverance. It's about the Messiah's deliverance and the deliverance of all God's people who are in union with the Messiah. So let's look at it together. Look in those first four verses that we read together. Notice how David begins uh, with exuberant praise. Uh, as he begins this song of deliverance, he starts by praising the Lord and God's character. And if you look at the, all the different descriptions of the Lord here, rock, fortress, refuge, shield, stronghold, these different words are all really concrete descriptions of who God is. Uh, obviously, David is speaking metaphorically, but he's using concrete physical things to speak about who, who God is. And uh, one of the reasons he's doing that is because that's how uh, our faith is made more vivid and more real when we recognize that God is like a rock. Uh, what does a rock convey? Stability, strength, security. Um, God is like a fortress. What, what's so great about a fortress? You're safe if you're in it. Uh, God is like a refuge. Uh, he's a place, you know, in the Old Testament, there were cities of refuge where you could flee, and if someone was trying to kill you, you had sanctuary in that city. Uh, David knew about physical places of refuge in his life. Remember when he was running away from Saul? Uh, on one occasion, he went to the cave of Adullam. And in the cave of Adullam, remember, he was just in total distress, and all the people who were in, indebted and who were in distress were coming to him and gathering to him in the cave of Adullam. And that was a refuge for him. Well, David may have had that on his mind when he spoke about how the Lord is his rock, the Lord is his fortress, the Lord is his deliverer, his safe place. God is his safe place. He, God is the one where David can go and be delivered from his enemies and from evil and from trouble. And so David is overflowing in praise because he's mindful of who God is as his rescuer. Notice also in this, this language of exuberant praise here, all the personal pronouns, my, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, my shield. The language of personal appropriation, it's not just that David has a great God, but that great God is his. And by faith, he's appropriating who God is in order to live the life that God has called him to live. Martin Luther says this, The sweetness of the gospel lies mostly in pronouns such as me, my, thy. Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Christ Jesus, my Lord. Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins are forgiven. So faith is in the pronouns, right? And when we're praying and we're, we're, we're crying out to the Lord for deliverance, it's not just having these concrete ways of referring to God, but it's also laying hold of him, saying he's mine. He's not just the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. One of my favorite stories about 
personally appropriating the language of, of who God is in Scripture is a story of, of a little boy. I don't know how old he was, but he was sick and he was near death. And the parents of the boy who was in the hospital called the minister to come out and talk to this boy before he was most certainly going to die. And the, the pastor uh, went in and, you know, prayed with the boy and gave him a devotional and, and left. Well, the next day, the minister came to the, the hospital and the boy had died. And um, the, uh, the parents said to the minister, they said it was the weirdest thing. As he died, he was just, he looked so at peace and he was, he was clenching his pinky finger like this. And the minister smiled and he explained to them the devotional he had given to them, to this boy. He, he had said, basically, the Lord, he said, I want you to remember five words. The Lord is my shepherd. And he said, my shepherd. And he was telling the boy, cling to your shepherd in the midst of your suffering. So sure enough, as that boy was passing from this life to the next, he was clinging to his shepherd. And that's what faith does. It, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. It clings to it, and that's what David is doing. And you can find this language uh, throughout the Psalms. So he begins with exuberant praise. Then look in verse 5 through 7, how he speaks of the great distress he was in. The great distress he was in. Now, we haven't read these verses, verse 5 through 7. It says, for the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his voice, he heard, my, from his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry came to his ears. So essentially there, David starts by talking about, just with an, an honest description of his plight. Uh, he describes death um, as like waves of the sea that have gone over his head. He s describes death or the grave, Sheol, like cords that have wrapped themselves around him. Now that may sound familiar to you because Jonah must have been familiar with these words because they show up in Jonah chapter 2 when Jonah prays his prayer from within the belly of the great fish. And he talks about how when he was thrown over, over, uh, overboard into the sea, that down and down he went into the depths of the sea, and it was like the billows of death were going over him, and cords, the, the cords of the seaweed were wrapping around his neck, and it, it's this horrible plight. I was on the verge of death. Um, and so David was at many times in his life. But notice what David tells us he did in the midst of his distress. Verse 7, in my distress, what did I do? I called upon the Lord, to my God I called, and from his, his temple he's heard my voice and his, my cry came to his ears. And so the simple thing is, in the midst of his affliction, in the midst of his distress, he cried out in desperation. And so whatever, whatever situation it was in David's life, running for his life from Saul, Absalom trying to take over his kingdom, we saw the rebellion of Sheba. David was a man who in the midst of his distress said, God, help me. And the Lord is near to his people when we cry out in distress. In fact, the Bible will say in another place, whoever what? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, delivered, rescued. So when we cry out for help, 
God reaches down in mercy and uh, rescues us from our distress in his time and in his way. One of the application questions we can ask ourselves is, is that how we respond when we're in distress? When our world is falling apart, when maybe it's not a life-threatening situation, maybe it's financial struggles, maybe it's struggles in marriage, struggle with child-rearing, job, whatever it may be, physical affliction. When we're in our distress, does our hopeless situation drive us to our knees in prayer? Because that's what happened in David's life as God's anointed. And as a true believer, in his distress, he called upon the Lord. So you think about there are different kinds of prayers we pray in life. One is kind of a, a wow prayer of adoration. Um, then sometimes our prayers are sorry, prayer for confession, repentance, forgiveness. But then one of our prayers is help, the cry of distress. And that is an experience that was in David's life. And that's an experience that God will bring into our lives because we learn to depend on the Lord. We learn how God is our rock, our fortress, our deliverer, our, all these things when we're in distress. It's normally when we're in pain. It's normally when we're in the crucible, when the Lord teaches us the things that we need to learn about him. So we see David's exuberant praise, his great distress. And then look at this part, starting in verse eight, God shows up. So God hears, we saw that in verse seven. He hears David, but also starting around verse 8, God shows up, and let me reverently say, he's ticked off, not with David, but with anyone who would threaten David. And this is a very militant, angry, masculine picture of God showing up, burning through the skies, ready to bring his judgment, and it's meant to be an encouragement. So look, just look at it in verse 8. Then the earth reeled and rocked. What does it mean, then? Then the earth reeled and rocked. Well, then after David prayed for help, God listened to David. And then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. So there you have God and consuming fire coming, smoke's coming out of his nostrils. He's riding on a cherub. He's going on the wings of the wind. Lightning is flashing. Thunder is cracking through the heavens. And, and David is, you know, this is, this is who God is. Now, now we know that there was some kind of uh, uh, resounding of this in creation. We might say there was, a, there was a tornado or there was an earthquake. There was thunder. There was lightning. 
But ultimately, uh, David understood this as a manifestation of the presence of God and God's righteous indignation that anyone would oppose the Lord's anointed, whether Saul or any of the other enemies of David. And the Lord is showing up in, in fire and in wrath uh, to, bring, to bring judgment. And, and the, it would have been easy to summarize verses 8 through 16. David could have just said, God showed up and delivered me. But he gives this vivid picture with this really intense language because he wants us to see it. This is poetry, right? It's a psalm and it's meant to be sung. But he wants us to see and, and feel the, the terrifying nature of the Lord. Now, we should be thankful that in Christ, the Lord does not come against us in such a manner. In Christ, the Lord does not come against David in such a manner. But rather, uh, this, we have been delivered from, this, from being on the receiving end of the Lord coming through the skies in fiery wrath with smoke coming from his nostrils and ready to throw down his fiery coals upon us. Praise God, right? And so that's one response we're supposed to have. But I think the second response to that description there is that we should rejoice that the Lord will defend his people. The Lord is on our side. And man, I want this guy on my side. This guy who rides through the heavens and speaks thunderously from the skies and who throws down the arrows of lightning upon the earth and at his rebuke, heaven and earth fly away. This God is our defender. He's David's deliverer, but he's also David's defender. And think about this. One of the ways we feel the love of God is by knowing how fiercely he defends us against the wicked. You ever thought about that? One of the ways we feel the love of God, know the love of God, is when we know how fiercely he defends us against the wicked. What do you think Revelation 19 was supposed to do to the early Christians when they knew they were suffering against Rome? To see Christ riding on a white horse coming, treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty and smashing the kings of the earth. That was supposed to be an encouragement to God's people that Christ is going to defend them, that he's going to defeat all the enemies of his people and of his kingdom. And that's supposed to be an encouragement that this is the Lord who is on our side. Have you ever been defended by, by, uh, by an elder brother even? I know that when I, was a, um, when I was a kid, my younger brother was getting picked on uh, by some older kids in the neighborhood and one of them threw a baseball, not a tennis ball, a baseball at my brother's back. And I wasn't there. I would have defended him. But um, <clears throat> maybe. <laughs> but he went home and got our older brother and his friend. And they came down and defended him. And it, he, was, he still talks about to this day. My brother came, my big brother came and defended me against this bully. Christ defends his people against the, bull, the wicked, the bullies of this world, the evil ones. And there is a sense in which we're supposed to, as God's people, appropriate this and know that Jesus, we are not supposed to seek vengeance, but remember what Scripture says, we're not supposed to seek vengeance because God will seek it, right? Vengeance is his. It's not that there's no such thing as vengeance. Vengeance is his. He's going to deal with the wicked. He's going to 
destroy the enemies of his kingdom. David had to wait a while for God to do that to Saul. And Absalom and Sheba and all these other enemies that came against him. But he's singing about this now, seeing it in this, this vivid way because he wants all the people of God to know who God is in defending his people. So look in verse 17 to continue there. He says, he sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Remember those waters of death. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. I couldn't do anything. They they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me. And here's, here's the key line in verse 30, or verse 20. Why did God rescue David? He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So what was God's motive to rescue David all these times? He delighted in David. One of the wonderful truths of the gospel is that through Christ, God delights in his people. Now that doesn't mean that he's pleased with everything that we do. We know that there was a lot of things that David did that the Lord was not displeased, that the Lord was not pleased with. Remember when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Uriah murdered? It said in that passage, frankly, and what David did displeased the Lord. But the Lord was pleased with David because David was the Lord's chosen. David was a believer. God looked at him with the eyes of grace. And so similarly, even in Christ as believers, the Lord delights in us. The Bible talks about God singing over us, God rejoicing over us, not because we are good, but because of his grace and because he views us through Christ. It doesn't mean that he doesn't see our sin, is not displeased by our sin, he is. But through Christ and by his grace, he is delighted in us. Think about it like this. We're in union with Christ. That means all that is true of Christ is true of us. And all that is true of us was true of Christ when God sacrificed him on the cross. That's why he died, because he he stood in our place. But also, we stand in his place because he lived that perfect life for us. And so you think about like at the baptism of Jesus, when the Father speaks from heaven and he says, this is my beloved son, with him I am well pleased. This is my beloved son, I delight in him. You hear that language? I'm pleased with him. In Christ, he says that of all of his sons and daughters. If we are in Christ, the Lord rescues us because he delights in us. It's a precious line there. Why did he rescue me? Because he delighted in me. Even though I'm a sinner, he delighted in me by his grace. Now, all of that being said, look at what trouble it's almost uncomfortable to us to read what david says next because what david pleads next is in light of all this deliverance david starts pleading his own righteousness look in verse 21 to 25 the lord dealt with me according to my righteousness according to the cleanness of my hands he rewarded me for i have kept the ways of the lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, 
and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. Those words make you uncomfortable? (laughs) Any of y'all pray like that? The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, the Lord has rewarded me. Uh, I think we all would agree we haven't seen those words in the Valley of Vision before, you know. (laughs) Puritan collection of Puritan prayers, they don't quite read like that. Possibly, but we don't know. Possibly, but let's let's take it that that way. Even if it was written before Bathsheba, <laughs> what does he say in Psalm fifty-one? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So, so even if yes, that that that's possible, but even if. It would still make us uncomfortable, right? Because we still know that even before the Bathsheba affair, he was not sinless, right? <laughs> That's sweet. <laughs> um, we know that David certainly cannot be speaking absolutely. He's a man who's committed sins. Even if he hasn't done the Bathsheba affair yet and murdered Uriah, um, he had sins from infancy, right? We're born sinners and we grow up uh, sinning in word, thought, and deed daily, as our catechism rightly says. Uh, We also know that David cannot be speaking of salvation by good works because David was saved, how? By grace, through faith, in the coming Messiah. In fact, Paul uses two Old Testament examples of justification by faith in Romans 4, and one is Abraham and the other is David. So, so we know that this can't be teaching salvation by works. So sometimes it helps just to start by saying we know what this can't mean before we start trying to figure out what it means. Um, most likely, commentators, I think, are correct to say that David is, here is speaking generally and relatively. He's not saying he's sinless, but he's saying that God has made a covenant with him and promised to bless him if he walks in faithfulness. When we walk in faithfulness, we experience the blessings of God's covenant. But as we know, if we walk in unfaithfulness to the Lord, we experience God's cursing. We experience uh, the opposite of his blessings. Uh, David is affirming that unlike Saul and his other enemies, David has sought as a general character of his life to walk in faithfulness and obedience to the Lord, and the Lord has rewarded that. So, as we've seen in other places in the Bible, when the Bible says blameless, it doesn't mean sinless in verse 24. It means wholehearted integrity. This is the tenor of my life, striving to obey God and glorify Him. When he speaks of reward, he's not speaking of salvation, but there is a reward for righteousness. The Bible talks about blessings for obedience as we live uh, in gratitude for the grace that is given Him. But there's probably also even more here to see than just the fact that God is blessing David with these acts of deliverance. Uh, God is vindicating David's righteous life as opposed to Saul's and um, Ishbosheth's and Absalom's. 
but rather we also need to remember that David is a type of Christ. And so as a type of Christ, the Spirit of Christ spoke through David. So for example, like in Psalm 22, when David says, my Lord, my Lord, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are those David's words? Yes, they're David's words, talking about his experience, but it's also the Spirit of Christ speaking through David about the suffering of the cross. Uh, And Peter talks about this in his epistle. He says that the Spirit of Christ spoke through the Old Testament prophets. And so there are even places where Peter will say, well, David said this, but he wasn't talking about David. He was talking about Christ. And so it is also, whereas David was speaking generally and relatively about his own life, God has vindicated me in the sense that I have walked in faithfulness, not sinless perfection, but God is blessing my obedience. It is also true that Christ is speaking through David about these things absolutely. So that, for example, when Christ was surrounded by enemies at the, at the cross, and he was crucified and unjustly sentenced to death, and they did all that evil against him, they spit at him, and they said, if you're really the Christ, come down from the cross, and they mocked him. And, and it looked like Christ lost, and God didn't vindicate him, and he, and he died, and he was buried. When God raised Christ from the dead, he was actually vindicating Christ. Christ was righteous. His sacrifice was accepted. In fact, in the book of Acts, it says, death could not hold him. And the reason why death could not hold Christ in the tomb is because the Lord Lord dealt with Christ according to his righteousness. And that is through Christ and through his perfect righteousness and obedience to the Lord, God raised him from the dead. So yes, David is speaking about himself here in his own historical context, but also we know that it points ultimately to the great deliverance that is coming through Christ, Jesus, the Lord's true anointed, uh, who will be delivered uh, from death, and we can, we can trust in that. Now, <clears throat> there is a, a sense in terms of application of that, that it's not wrong if you are a victim of injustice to pray that the Lord would vindicate you, even in this life. That's a, that's a good prayer to pray. And so relatively, as David is speaking here, it is appropriate to pray your own righteousness in that sense, in that limited qualified sense to say, God, look on my affliction. Look on the fact that I've been mistreated. Look on the fact that I'm serving you and vindicate me. This is not an isolated prayer. You can find prayers like this in, in the book of Psalms where the saints will say, Lord, I'm not perfect, I'm I'm sinful, I know I'm sinful, but I am faithfully serving you, right? There is a difference between being sinful and being faithful, right? We can't be sinlessly perfect in this life, but we can be faithful. And does the Lord reward faithfulness? Absolutely. Does he vindicate his servants? Absolutely. And that's that's what David is talking about uh, with that pleading of his own righteousness. This understanding of God working justly and righteously to vindicate even the righteousness of his servants leads David to adore the character of God in verses 26 to 31. And um, one of the things that is really highlighted there is that your, your disposition towards the Lord really affects the way that he relates to you. 
Uh, in New Testament language, we would say God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, right? So to the proud, God relates in one way, but to the humble, he relates in another way. And when it comes to God's deliverance, he chooses to save a humble people. So look in verse 26. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. With the crooked, however, you make yourself seem torturous. So one's relationship to the unchanging God affects the way God relates to that person. Because verse 28, you save a humble people. Your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. His word proves true. He is a shield to all those who take refuge in him. So all of these things are true. God gives light, verse 29. God empowers his servants, verse 30. And God's word is perfect and true. Being delivered by the grace of God leads David into the adoration and the worship of God. It's the same for us. When we realize that the Lord has delivered us, we are led to worship his greatness. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In verses 32 to 43, I've got to speed up here so we get done. Uh, God empowers uh, King David and also by extension the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, to defeat all of his enemies. In the interest of time, I'm not going to read all of those verses, um, but I wanted to point out in verse 36, when David speaks about how God is empowering him as the Lord's anointed king to vanquish all of the enemies of God's people, David speaks about how God trains his hands for war, and by, by God's strength, he's able to leap over a wall, and by God's strength, he can defeat the enemy and all these things. But there's a surprising thing that is said um, in verse 36. He says, you have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness has made me great. Now, NIV translates it, your help has made me great. Okay, the word is really the gentleness of God. It's kind of surprising, isn't it? <laughs> of all the things that could make, you could say made, made David great, the power of God, uh, the, the God arriving with anger and wrath and you know, smoke coming out of his nostrils. But with regard to God's relationship with David, what made him great was the gentleness of God. In verse 36, your gentleness made me great. And um, part of that is just the recognition that in David's relationship with the Lord, he recognized that if the Lord should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? But with him there is forgiveness, therefore he is feared. When you realize that, yes, God could come against you with this, this wrath, like is described earlier on in this passage, with, with the Lord thundering against his enemies, and you realize that the only thing that separates you from the enemies is the grace of God, 
When you realize that and you realize God treats you not as your sins deserve, the scripture says he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, but as high as the heavens are above the earth, and as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That gentleness of the Lord is what made David great and what enabled David to trust God to deal with his enemies rather than take the matter into his own hands. David had opportunities to kill Saul. But he didn't avail himself of those opportunities because why? God's going to deal with my enemies. He's going to bring them under judgment. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yes, yes. But he is a gentle God, yeah. Yeah. And even, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yes, absolutely. And there's a verse in here, I'm overlooking it, where he says essentially that, that it, is, it is the Lord who has, has made my way this way. <laughs> verse 33, this God is my refuge. He has made my way blameless. So it's not that this is works righteousness, that I've just made myself like this. He has done this in me and for me. He, verse 33 in the verse, he's made my way uh, blameless. But, he, but notice this, because I do think it's significant. Remember I said your relationship with God, God relates to you based on your, 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 uh, your disposition towards him. Because when he talks about David destroying all his enemies... Pick up in verse 41. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them as fine dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. So notice there, David, as the, as the executor of God's wrath, is defeating God's enemies. But notice what it says about God's enemies. They looked, but there was none to save, verse 42. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. So compare verse 42 with verse 7. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice my cry came to his ears. So God listens to David, rescues David. But verse 40, 42, we've talked about this before earlier on in the study of Samuel. You know when you get a call and uh, your phone starts ringing and you don't want to talk to that person? Does God do that? The Bible teaches that he does. That there are, there are people who pray to him. To, look, it's again, I'm not... Just look at the, the Bible, okay? I'm not re- this is my, my opinion. They cried to, capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. They cried to Yahweh, but he did not answer them. David says, recognizes this in other places in the Psalms. He'll say, if I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Now, we live in a very egalitarian, kind of uh, democratic world, where, you know, kind of thought, everybody's thoughts and prayers are equally valuable in the eyes of God. God's listening to everybody who prays. 
But that's not what the Bible teaches. Your relationship with God does matter in terms of the effectiveness of your prayer life. So there's a phrase that should be like nails on a chalkboard to all of us. Whenever we hear it, the power of prayer. The power of prayer, folks. Prayer has zero power. God has power. Through the prayers of his people, offered according to his will, in his way, power is unleashed through that means. But the prayer doesn't have power. Now you can say if someone says that and that's what they mean, okay. But do the prayers of Muslims have power? Do the prayers of Christ-rejecting Jews have power? Do the prayers of these enemies of the Lord and of the Lord's anointed who cry to the Lord, do they have power? Well, look, they're fine. They're smashed into the dust in verse 43. So we have to be careful that we understand that it's not the power of prayer, but it's prayer laying hold of the power of God. He is, he is the power. The Lord is the one who delivers. Prayer, if offered in the right way to the right God, on the right grounds, has great power. The prayer of a righteous man has power as it's working, the Bible says. But prayer in itself has to be qualified by more things. God doesn't listen to all prayers equally. He doesn't listen to all people equally. And there will be many people, when judgment falls upon them, who will cry out. In fact, the Bible talks about when, when, when Christ came in judgment on the city of Jerusalem in the, in the first century, Jesus said, all these things are going to come to pass in this generation. When Christ brought that historical providential judgment, people wanted to go crawl into the mountains and say, mountains, crush us, rather than come under the wrath of the Lamb. There is a sense in which unbelievers may, in desperation, cry out to the Lord, but because of their relationship to Him, it doesn't make a difference. I think that's a contrast we're meant to see there between those two that's supposed to sober us. So if we are true believers, we are on praying ground. But you have to be on praying ground. The only praying ground that can be found is through Christ. That's why even you think about when we pray in Jesus' name, that's not just an empty thing. It means I don't deserve for the Lord to listen to me. I don't deserve for the Lord to hear me, but I come to him in the blood and righteousness of Christ. He's my mediator. He's the one who gives me free access to God. And then finally here, the nations recognize God's work of deliverance in David's life, and they're called to worship the Lord. Verse 44, David refers to himself in the most interesting of ways if you've been reading First and Second Samuel. It seems like a hyperbole, but it's ultimately looking forward to Christ. Look what he says. You delivered me from strife with my people, you kept me as the head of the nations. Notice that phrase, the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. 
So we saw there were Gentiles who recognized that David was the anointed and came in. But certainly that was a small and shadowy way during, the, during 1 and 2 Samuel when some Gentiles acknowledged David to be king. Ultimately, there is the hope that David is going to be the king or the son of David is going to be the king of the whole world. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed in David. So much so that he'll say in verse 45, foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance. The God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the men of violence. For this, for this I will praise you, O Lord. Again, key phrase, among the what? Among the nations. And sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed to David, and to his offspring forever. When we looked at God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, we said that that covenant was connected to his covenant with Abraham because God was going to use David, the seed of Abraham, to fulfill the promises of Abraham, which would be to bless all the nations of the earth through David, the seed of Abraham. So that, that connection was also, uh, we said, that 2 Samuel 7, God says, that he's going to defeat all of David's enemies, give him rest from all his enemies. And so now you see those covenant promises are coming true in David's life, and they're pointing forward to the redemptive purposes of God for the whole world, that in the midst of the nations, God would be praised through the line of David. He comes from the line of Abraham. So that these covenant promises will actually come true among all the nations of the earth. That the deliverance that David is celebrating is not just his personal deliverance, it is. It's not just the deliverance of Israel, it is. But it's also the deliverance of the Messiah and people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation among all the nations who are brought into Messiah's empire and kingdom and are blessed in him. Over time, out of time. Let's pray and we'll go to our discussions. Father, we thank you for your deliverance. We think of the psalm that says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Indeed it does. There's nothing that we can do to deliver ourselves. It was when David was in distress that he called to you and you heard from your holy temple and you answered and you delivered him. Time and time again, you delivered him from Saul. You delivered him from the Philistines, from Goliath, giant of a man. You delivered him from his own son, staged a coup d'etat to take over his kingdom. You delivered him from Sheba. And even, even after he had sinned, when he didn't deserve to be delivered, you delivered him again and again. And we thank you that in Christ you have delivered us, that Christ is the righteous one who has suffered for our sins. And paid the ultimate price of atonement for us and that in Christ you have delivered us from death and from all the enemies against, against you and your people. And we pray that you would help us to take hope and to learn to set our hearts and our affections on you because you delight in us and you've rescued us. And Lord, we thank you that you do not come against us as you came against these enemies of David, of your anointed, 
are your enemies in any generation, but you come to us in favor, rejoicing over us with loud singing and delighting over us as your own sons and daughters. We pray that we would rejoice in the deliverance we have in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.